This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Working out what artificial intelligence can and can't do is more complicated than it seems, and it's an issue that uh, some of the professions are grappling with. On the face of it, law is an area that rests on fine human judgment. But in fact, many of its tasks can be performed by AI. And if that's true for law, then presumably it's also true for many other areas too. Well, Daniel Suskind of Oxford University has written on this in The Future of the Professions, and I must say a bigger than usual subtitle, How Technology Will Transform the World of Human Experts. Uh, Welcome. Great pleasure to be with you. And it's a father and son book, which is quite unusual. How how did that come about? Um, It was a sort of perfect storm. Uh, I was uh, working in uh, government at the time. I was working in the uh, policy unit in in 10 Downing Street across lots of different policy areas on tax policy, on education policy, on health policy. Uh, And it was clear that lots of change was in the air in all the different professions that I was exposed to. At the same time, my dad had been working on thinking about the impact of technology and artificial intelligence in, in the legal profession for almost 40 years. He wrote his doctorate back in the 1980s on artificial intelligence in the law. And so one of the observations he made was that, you know, after talking to an audience of lawyers, at the end, a stray doctor, a stray teacher, a stray accountant, a stray architect would come up and say, look, what you're talking about in the professions in the legal profession, it's all very interesting, but it applies equally well in our profession too. And so we had this idea of joining forces to look at the professions more generally based on these experiences that we had. And and that's exactly what we did. And the result was this book, The Future of the Professions. Uh, and I noticed you used the phrase technology and AI. So there's a difference, right? And and we're, we're talking on yeah, a thing called Zencaster, which is technology and it enables us, you know, I'm, uh, you're in Oxford, I'm in London, and it sounds pretty good. But AI is different. What's the difference? I, it's a, it's an artificial distinction. It just, you know, artificial intelligence is clearly one type of technology. It just seemed to us that something so interesting and something so distinct was happening in the world of artificial intelligence, that it was worth drawing a distinction between the sorts of more commonplace technologies that we might be familiar with, and what was happening in the world of artificial intelligence. And I think since we wrote that book in 2015, and uh, you know we revisited it in an updated edition just a few months ago, I think that distinction has turned out to be a, a useful one, because clearly something important and something distinctive has been happening in the world of artificial intelligence. But can you can you pin that down for us? Is it is it yeah. the sort of processing of mass data or something, or what, what is it? I, I mean, to put it to put it bluntly, these systems which are based on various techniques, these artificial intelligence systems, are taking on more and more tasks that until recently we thought only human beings alone 
could ever do. Making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and designing buildings, composing music and writing news reports. All of these advances, these encroachments on to activities that the professions do that until recently we thought only human beings could do, they're driven by artificial intelligence. And so it was that it was that sort of sense that these AI systems were doing something quite different that made us want to, to look at it a little bit more closely. Okay, so I didn't really realize that. Basically, what you're saying is that artificial intelligence is just very advanced technology. You know, there's technology, and it's very advanced technology. There's nothing specific to the nature of artificial intelligence that helps you sort of hive it off from other technological developments? No, I mean, if, if you ask me what what has driven the progress in artificial intelligence, I'd say three things. It's one, extraordinary advances in processing power. Two, it's extraordinary advances in data storage capability. And three, it's impressive advances in algorithm design in the sort of instructions that we set these systems to follow. Um, there is nothing you know, particularly special about each of those things. Uh, if you were, to, you know, all of them are driven in part by technological progress. Um, it's just that the impact of artificial intelligence is so, uh, as as a particular example of technology, it's just so profound that we thought it was worth looking at in a distinct way. Okay, well, let's go through some of the different uh, areas, the different professions, and just hear your you having you know, thought about this and written this uh, book you know what you've what you've worked out really as to where ai and this advanced technology can can play a role so lawyers you know i mean judges famously have to judge right and they have to make these very very sort of subtle nuanced decisions presumably technology can't really do that mm. And I think one of the things, just to sort of step back for a moment, I mean, one of, one of the observations that we make, having spent a lot of time talking with professionals and spending time in the professions, is that professionals and and sort of defenders of the professions often make what we call the sort of argument from hard cases, which is to identify a particular task or individual activity, which is very hard to automate in the professions, and then to sort of reason back from that, that because of that, um, th- that profession is somehow immune or uh, insulated from technological change. And and you see professionals of all different stripes doing this, going to the particular activity that they do, which is, uh, which is very hard to automate, and then arguing that they're protected from technological change and and this is a this is just a mistake that applies across the professions you know no profession is a sort of monolithic indivisible lump of stuff you know when you look under the bonnet of any job any professional job even the most expert ones what you see is a wide variety of different tasks and different activities and so thinking from the bottom up in terms of individual tasks rather than the top down in terms of entire jobs is very helpful and so you know, if you take the legal example, it's certainly true that there are some individual tasks that lawyers do, which is which are quite hard to see how they might be automated anytime soon. But that's not everything a lawyer does. You know, if you look at the job of a of a sort of you know a standard lawyer, things like document review, document assembly, document retrieval, these sorts of activities make up a big part of what it means to be a lawyer, and yet they're precisely the sorts of activities where these technologies are encroaching. But 
and this is it goes to your question before about what's so special about artificial intelligence. What we see is that these technologies are now not only taking on what economists would call the routine activities, and in law, those tasks that I just mentioned are good examples. They're also taking on the non-routine activities, the sorts of activities that until recently we would have thought were hard to automate. So, you know, Lex Machina, for instance, it's a system that's said to be able to predict the outcome of patent disputes as accurately as many patent lawyers. Um, now, that is the sort of activity that I don't think we'd call routine. And and to some extent, it's, I think it's, you know, it's been pretty surprising uh, to lawyers to see how uh, these activities can take on it these systems can take on tasks that might have required exactly, as you say, faculties like judgment in the past. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so there are two things there. Drafting, let me, t- two examples, I'm sure there are many others, but, you know, let, let's say, you know, a very standard legal procedure like drafting a will. Yeah, you could put some inputs into it and AI would come out with a with a pretty workable will. It may be a lawyer needs to read it to check, but it's going to be pretty good. And And then you can predict, what, judicial decisions, really? And there are, and you know, there are systems that do that sort of predictive activity. I, I think one of the interesting things that comes up in the legal profession is less the technical question of what these systems and machines can and cannot do, but more the sort of moral questions about whether or not, even if it's technically feasible, whether or not it's morally permissible. So just to give you an example, you know, there are systems and machines at the moment that help inform parole decisions in the United States. They're already used. And, you know, some people might feel uncomfortable about that. Others might feel more uncomfortable, might feel more comfortable. But how would we feel, for instance, about a system that's making decisions about life sentencing, for instance? I think people would feel far more uncomfortable about that. And those are less questions about technical limits and they're more questions about moral limits and I think in the legal profession it's a good example of where the moral limits on these technologies will bind will get in our way uh, far quicker than the technical limits do. And presumably that's partly because there will always be hard cases where a human would say well yeah we've got to take that into account you know some particularly unusual set of circumstances perhaps and and make this uh, you know counterintuitive judgment isn't that part of it certainly and there are hard cases which we might think require human judgment or human reflection and creativity in in resolving but again it's important to remember that not all cases are hard cases you know if you go to a website like ebay for instance every year uh, on ebay 60 million disputes arise 60 million disputes uh, and they're resolved online without any traditional lawyers using what's known as an e-mediation system. So just to put that 60 million in context, that's 40 times the number of civil claims that are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system. It's three times the number of lawsuits filed in the entire US legal system. They're resolved on this one website without any traditional lawyers. Uh, you know, a lot of legal disputes um, are not of the hard, um, obscure type. Uh, they're relatively routine. Uh, and at the moment, if we're honest and frank with ourselves, uh, the legal profession does not do enough in providing people knowledge about their you know, legal entitlements and support in resolving them. And so one of the hopes is that 
these sorts of technologies in the legal profession might provide more access to justice. Um, yeah, it, it, it was the main, uh, one of the most important motivations in writing this book, The Future of the Professions. It was actually, when we started looking at it, less about what it meant for the future of lawyers and the future of legal practice, and far more about what it meant for customers and clients of traditional legal providers. It was Our motivation was based on a sense that the legal profession wasn't doing a good enough job as it, as it traditionally stood, and, and we were interested in how we could use technologies to do things quite differently. It's, it's quite amazing what you just said about eBay. And in, in that, it, it, was it 40 million? And Six, it, 60 million. It, 60 million. And out of that 60 million, I mean, are there some, case, some cases that are so hard that eventually it has to go to a human to be resolved? Yeah. So, so if I remember correctly, of the 60 million, I think 52 million are resolved without any human um, interaction or any sort of human intermediation at all. And then the remaining 8 million require some kind of human mediation but what's quite interesting is that those human beings who are involved in that mediation are not traditional lawyers uh they're different different types of people and and this is another argument of the book which is that uh, technology doesn't just simply destroy work often what it does is it changes the tasks and activities involved in solving problems and as a result, just quite different types of people with different types of skills and capabilities are required to, to do that work. In this case, people that don't necessarily look, look, look a lot like traditional lawyers. So we've uh, talked about the legal profession. Uh, AI and advanced technology in the medical profession. What, what happens? What's happening there? I think one of the most interesting uh, interesting pieces of progress is in medical diagnostics um there you know there are systems a system was recently developed at stanford that if you give it a photo of a freckle it can tell you as accurately as leading dermatologists whether or not that freckle is uh cancerous um you know a system was developed by DeepMind, uh, the artificial intelligence company based in london now owned by google it can diagnose up to 50 different eye problems as accurately as leading ophthalmologists. Uh, I think some of the, as I said, yeah, I, for me, when I look at the medical profession, some of the most exciting things that are happening are with respect to diagnosis, as I've, as I've just described. Yeah, but I mean, presumably, not just as accurately, but more accurately, because if the doctor, I don't know, has a bad day, or is distracted, you know, they may make a false judgment, whereas the machine will be more reliable. Well, quite. It's it's um, uh, you know machines don't get tired. They don't have a bad day. They don't come in a little bit hungover from the night before. Um, you know there are uh, uh, if, if if you look at the error rates and misdiagnosis rates and then misprescription rates and so on associated with the medical profession. I think yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's not negligible. Um, you know, if you go back to the legal profession, just, you know, there, there is evidence that suggests that um, sentencing is more, is less lenient uh, in the run up to lunch when judges start to get hungry. Um, you can imagine that, you know, analogous um, 
you know, aspects of, sort of human fallibility come in when thinking about medical diagnosis too. Um, it does raise an interesting point though about what what the what the benchmark is, uh, what the standard is to which we're holding these these systems. I mean, many people from experience when they hear that these medical diagnostic systems aren't perfect, that they do make mistakes sometimes, are outraged and they're furious. But to hold these systems to a standard of perfection is exactly as you're suggesting, I think, to hold them to a, a higher standard than we hold our, our fellow human beings, our fellow human doctors. So you say you're looking at this from the point of view of the, you know, the client of the lawyer, or presumably in this case, the patient. And I can imagine that many patients would actually, if they were told a machine is that reliable, would prefer have the machine do it because they think, well, there's no chance of the doctor getting it wrong because they're having a bad day. But there will be other aspects of medical practice where they will want to see a doctor rather than a machine. Have you sort of worked out where that distinction lies? Yeah, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's right. I think in many cases in the professions, I, d- I don't want to say things like the personal touch or, or empathy are, are unimportant. I don't think they're unimportant at all. But I think in many cases, they are overrated in the professions. I was once talking to a group of accountants and a particularly boisterous accountant stood up and said, look, Daniel, you don't understand. My clients come to me because they want the personal touch. They want me to look them in the eye. You know, they want the supportive hand on the shoulder. And I said to him, look, you know, actually, that isn't why your clients come to you. They come to you because they want their taxes done efficiently and effectively. Uh, And if they can find a way of doing it that's more affordable than you, then I I think they'll probably go with that rather than rather than coming to see you and, and the personal touch. Um, in, in the medical profession, I think that's that sort of reasoning is, I think it's true for some things that that medical practitioners do, but certainly not all of them. Um, that said, I mean, what's quite interesting is that it's not obvious necessarily that the the doctor themselves needs to be the person who's providing that sort of empathetic personal touch. Um, one of the things we write about that's happening in the professions is that more and more professional work is being what we could what we call decomposed or disaggregated into all the different tasks and activities that make it up um so you can imagine that one day in the future you go to uh you know a, a hospital a gp surgery whatever it might be and you are met by a nurse a nurse practitioner who with one of these diagnostic systems is able to provide the sort of expert insight that might have required a doctor in the past, but is also able to offer the sort of empathetic support uh, that if we're honest with ourselves, actually quite a lot of domain experts, subject matter experts, doctors being one of them, uh, the sort of empathetic support that actually a lot of doctors lack. Um, and, and it's quite an interesting opportunity to, to, to sort of break down the different tasks and activities and allocate them to different types of people using these technologies. Many of the people listening to this podcast are academics and they'll uh, be teaching students. Uh, And I I think may share the experience I've had that Zoom teaching is is not great and and it it doesn't really work quite as well. I mean, I presume there'd be a large cheer if you could work out some AI that would mark essays reliably. Uh, But what what, what can you do in, in, in teaching? I th- uh, so I think, um, and, and your observation, uh, I think, is a really important one. I think one of the 
you know, over the last few years, we've been forced to use technology and education because of the pandemic. And I think one way to think about the pandemic is that it's been a sort of massive, unplanned, unwanted, but entirely inescapable pilot scheme in the use of technology in the workplace and particularly in education. And I suppose the point I'd make is that as with any pilot scheme, we ought to be trying to gather as much data and evidence as we can on what has and what has not worked well. Uh, and this is true for education too. Um, I think there's um, uh, there's a lot of uh, anecdote and intuition floating about what about what has and what has not worked well. And I think it would be interesting to interrogate that a little bit more closely. For me, for me, I think one of the most interesting uses of technology and education is actually less about remote learning, which isn't particularly radical. It's simply doing what we've always done, uh, but just at a technolo- you know at a technologically supported distance. What what interests me far more is is how we can use technology to personalize the learning experience. Uh, there's a a piece of evidence from the educational literature um, known as the two sigma problem, which is that um, any student who receives one to one tuition from a human teacher will tend to outperform 98 percent of their classmates uh, in a traditional classroom setting. In other words, one to one tuition tends to lead to you know a two standard deviation or a two sigma uh, improvement in in educational uh, outcomes. The problem, of course, the reason it's a two sigma problem uh, is that one to one tuition is not a affordable uh, you know, educational strategy at, at, at scale. And so, one of the exciting possibilities offered by technology is that we can sort of replicate some of the features of that one to one tuition at far lower cost with what are known as personalized learning systems, systems that tailor what is taught, how it's taught, the pace at which it's taught and so on to the particular needs and uh, strengths and weaknesses of any given student. And there are various systems being built in that spirit at the moment. Uh, And and for me, that's that's one of the more exciting, uh, exciting dimensions of technology and education. Uh, another area in which I've had some involvement, journalism. I mean, I remember seeing about, I don't know, was it five, maybe longer, five years ago, uh, 100-word sports report on a match, football match, let's say, and it was, yeah, very impressive. I mean, it was just, it read very well, and it gave the basic facts of of that story. But it, uh, having seen that, I thought, oh, gosh, we, we may all be out of work soon. It hasn't really developed beyond that, has it? Mm. It's interesting. You're right. I mean, so... I remember as well, Associated Press began to use algorithms to computerize the production of earnings reports. Uh, and using those algorithms, I think they produced about 15 times as many earnings reports as when they relied upon traditional financial journalists alone. Um, I think quite a lot of this stuff is happening. It's just happening in the background. So if you go onto a website like Bloomberg.com today for your financial news, I think about a third of the content on there is now generated by an automated system rather than written by a human journalist. It's just not celebrated. It's just not, you know, we just take it as part of the furniture, you know, the sort of technological furniture. Um, I, 
So I think I think some of these things are are happening in the background. I, I think some of the developments that we've seen, you know, we're we're talking in the week where there's been a lot of excitement about GPT Chat, which is the system that has been developed by OpenAI, uh, an artificial intelligence uh, company based in in the states. Uh, if you have a look at, uh, I mean, the way it works for those who haven't had a chance to to take a look is that you give it a a prompt in, you know, in English, and it will um, generate text. It will generate images, uh, and so on. But you can ask it to, for instance, write an article on X um, in the style of this particular author or this particular atmosphere or whatever it might be. And I mean, some of the content that it's generating is really quite remarkable. Uh, and um, I so if we go back to what we were talking about before, that until now we're sort of used to the idea that technology takes on routine activities in journalism that might be producing earnings reports or uh, writing sports uh, reports and so on. What we see with something like GPT Chat are technologies taking on non-routine activities as well, writing. Uh, you know, composing text that um, is interesting and funny and creative, uh, and certainly the sort of thing that um, is is sufficient to to rival the you know, journal, journalistic um, talents of of, uh, of human beings. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's just run through some others. Uh, accountants. Well, I mean, presumably, number crunching is something AI is brilliant at. I think I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I um, you know these systems rely upon lots of data, and if there's if there's something that accountants uh, you know do, it's it's handling it's handling lots of data. Um, people talk about you know the traditional way in which we do an audit, for example, um, far too many financial transactions to review them all. So you take a small sample. You've got methods for trying to ensure that that sample's representative, uh, and then you extrapolate and you draw broader conclusions about the general health of a company based on that narrow snapshot. Um, we're seeing changes to that. We're seeing not, you know, companies trying not to take, you know, little snapshots and extrapolating, but instead trying to run algorithms through entire bodies of transactions, you know, entire populations of transactions, hunting for. Uh, irregularities and inconsistencies in that way. We're also seeing a move towards continuous auditing. Again, quite interesting, rather than do it, taking snapshots at particular discrete intervals through the year, perhaps a quarter, perhaps every half year, perhaps annually. Instead, we're seeing algorithms that run through data continually, you know, looking, you know, continuously monitoring for, for irregularities and inconsistencies. So I think there's lots of uh, interesting um, innovation to happen there as well. Architecture. Tell us about the Hamburg Concert Hall. It's incredible. I mean, it's a space that you walk into and you look at it and you think, you know, gosh, only a human being with a remarkably refined aesthetic sensibility would be capable of crafting a space like this. Um, and it, it's worth having a Google just to just to see what it looks like. It is. It's a, it's a beautiful contemporary space and. What's interesting about it is that it was not designed by a human being. It was designed by uh, an algorithm. Uh, what, what happened was the architects in question had a system and they set the system various criteria. You know, we want the system, we want the, the space to be made of these materials. We want it to have these 
acoustic properties, um, even some more granular things, like if there was a panel within reach of an audience member, they wanted it to have a particular texture uh, when you touched it. And, and essentially, the system based on those criteria generated a set of possible designs. Uh, and all that was left for the architects to do was to sift through them and, and choose the one that they happened to like the most. So in, in all these areas, I'm, I'm getting the impression that, you know, that, that, that technology and AI can do more and more tasks and yet there's still a role for a human. And also the other point you seem to be making is that what we think of as creativity and traditionally think that's a human activity, that that is being chipped away at and, and things that we consider creative are now being done by machines. I think this latter point is the, perhaps the most important one, uh, which is that for a long time there were activities that required faculties not only like creativity, but also like judgment, also like empathy, that we thought were out of reach of these technologies. And I think the reason, and I, I write a lot about this in 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 my work, uh, The Future of the Professions, and more recently, a, a World Without Work, you know, understanding why it is that we thought these activities were out of reach, and in turn, understanding why it is that that turns out to be wrong, I think is really important. And, and, and to just to explain very briefly, uh, until very recently, most people thought that if we wanted to build a system to outperform a human expert, it meant sitting down with a human expert, getting them to explain to you how they performed a particular task or activity, and then trying to capture that in a set of instructions or rules for a system to follow. But here was the problem, uh, or at least what they thought was the problem. If you sat down with a doctor, for instance, and said, look, tell me how it is you make such a good medical diagnosis, they might be able to give you a few you know, heuristics, a few rules of thumb, and they might be able to point you to the right page in the encyclopedia where the kind of particular ailment in question is being discussed. But ultimately, they would struggle. They'd say things like, it requires intuition, it requires judgment, it requires experience. You know, I had to look the patient in the eye, I had to just, I just had a feel when I went in the room. And all of these things were, you know, are very difficult to articulate. And so, in the field of artificial intelligence, many people thought these sorts of things would be very hard to automate. If a human being cannot articulate how they perform a task, well, where on earth do we begin? People worried in, in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow. Now, what's interesting is that if you look at, for instance, that medical diagnostic system I mentioned at Stanford that can tell you whether or not a freckle is cancerous as accurately as leading dermatologists, how does this system actually work? Well, it's not trying to copy the judgment of a human doctor. You know, it knows, it understands absolutely nothing about medicine at all. Uh, instead, it's got a database of about 140,000 past cases. And it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through those cases, hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo of the troubling freckle in question. It's performing the task in an unhuman way, you know, based on the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. It doesn't matter, and this is the key point, it does not matter any longer 
that a human doctor might struggle to articulate how they make a medical diagnosis, the system is able to perform the task in a fundamentally different way. And, and the reason why it can is because, just to go right back to what we were saying at the start about artificial intelligence, the reason it can is because of these advances in processing power, in data storage capability, and in algorithm design, which allow this system to perform the task in a fundamentally different way to human beings. It's no longer riding on the coattails of human intelligence. And that's the big shift that's taken place. And that's why these tasks that require things like creativity and judgment and even empathy can increasingly be automated. Not because these systems can be creative or can exercise judgment or can be empathetic, but because they're now able to perform these tasks in fundamentally different ways. See, I'm interested you're, you're wrapping in empathy with this because when I can see what you're saying about creativity and what we think of as creativity, uh, surely that's, I mean, the whole point of empathy, it is human to human understanding, that almost within the definition of the word. And it's something that is hugely valued by lots of people. So it's an important thing. And, it, and it's almost by definition, isn't it? It can't be done by a machine. I, so... If you, if you were to ask me, can a machine ever be empathetic? I'd say, as it stands, perhaps it could be effectively empathetic in the sense that it might be able to identify particular emotions on a human face more accurately than a human being. But is it cognitively empathetic in the sense, does it feel emotions? Probably not, no. And it's going to be some time before that happens. But in a sense, the question, can a machine ever be empathetic? It's the wrong question. The question is, can a machine perform a task that requires empathy from human beings, but perhaps perform it in a different way? And I think the answer to that is already yes. I mean, just let me give you an example. Um, Joseph Weizenbaum, who was one of the founding fathers of artificial intelligence, um, wrote a book called Computer Power and Human Reason, which is sort of a biographical, autobiographical book of his experience in the field of AI. And he opens that book with the story of uh, a system that he built called ELISA. Uh, and it was a system that he built as a bit of a joke. It was meant to um, imitate uh, what would happen. It was meant to imitate a sort of uh, uh, a psychoanalyst. So you'd sit down with ELISA and it would say, how are you feeling? Um, and you'd say, I'm feeling well. You and then it would ask, you know, are you really feeling well? And you'd have this conversation. And it was a bit of a parody, a bit of a joke. Um, and uh, he asked his secretary to come in and have an interaction with this system. And um, she sat down and and she knew full well the spirit in which this system had been built. And yet after a few back and forth questions, she turned around to Joseph Feisenbaum and said, Joseph, I want you to leave the room. Um, she wanted some time with the system uh, alone. Uh, and this really troubled Weizenbaum. And, and, he, and he spent and he really wanted to understand what had happened in that moment and, and, uh, and what was going on. But the reason I say that is because, well, look, the interaction with a human therapist, for instance, there's an interaction that we would think the core of what is going on there is some kind of empathetic interaction. And yet here is a system, an incredibly naive system built 50 years ago that appeared to offer this secretary something certainly wasn't being empathetic in the way that human being might but it offered this secretary something that she wanted to spend a bit more time with it uh and uh 
Um, and when you step back and look at it, you know, perhaps that's right. You know, this was a system that wasn't empathetic. So it wasn't going to judge her when she shared her problems. You know, you might worry that, you know, what is my therapist thinking about me when I share my concerns and, and fears? The system wasn't doing that. And so we could, you know, write a list of how the system might be performing the task in a different way. But I suppose that's the sort of the point, which is that even tasks that require empathy from human beings might it might be possible to perform them um, in different ways in the future through technology. Uh, we haven't talked about or used the word originality in all of this. So uh, I think there's someone called Lady Lovelace who I've not come across before. So who's Lady Lovelace and what's her objection? Uh, well, it's the it's the Lady Lovelace. Um, objection to um uh the, the the issue of originality comes up when we're thinking about uh the faculty of creativity um you know the question i always ask given that these technologies are now able to perform tasks in different ways is not can a machine perform can a machine exercise a particular human faculty but instead it's to what problem is that faculty the solution and, and might these systems be able to solve that problem in different ways? So creativity, the faculty of creativity, to what problem is creativity the solution? Um, well, the problem of the problem that we're trying to solve when we use our creativity is one of originality. When we want something novel, when we want something new, when we want to be taken by surprise, um, that's when we bring our creativity to bear. And so the interesting question is, can a machine, not can a machine ever be creative, but can a machine ever come up with something original? Um, and the Lady Lovelace objection is an objection, I think it was posed to, to Alan Turing, uh, which was that these systems uh, could never come up with anything original. Um, and I think the great counterexample to this is a, um, a system that was built by uh, DeepMind called AlphaGo, which plays the game uh, Go. Now, I don't play the game Go, but what I know about it is that it's combinatorially incredibly complex. And what I mean by that is the the number of possible moves in the game from the very beginning is incredibly large. You know, in a game like chess, there's only a few possible moves you can play at the start. And then after that, there's only a few possible moves. So the game is, the, the possible paths that the game of chess can take are quite well bounded. But in Go, there are, I think, 64 possible moves from the beginning and then um, 63 possible moves. And, and the number of possible paths the game can take is just vast. And and what that meant was that many people in uh, computer science thought we were some way away from ever building a system that could beat the, uh, you know, the human champion at the game of Go. We do it in chess, um, you know, back in 97 Gary Kasparov was beaten by Deep Blue, but that sort of thing until very recently, many computer scientists thought was some way off in, in Go. And yet that is exactly what AlphaGo managed to do relatively recently. It sat down with a man called Lee Sedol, who at the time was the world Go champion in it, and it beat him four games to one. But the reason why this is quite an interesting moment was a particular move that the system played. And it was the, I think it was the 37th move in the second game. Um, and I was watching the game live on, on YouTube at the time. And uh, and it was really interesting that there's a rule of thumb in the game of Go. And as I said, I, I don't play it, but I'm told any beginner knows it, which is 
do not put a piece on the fifth line from the edge. Uh, the go board is divided up into eight vertical lines and eight horizontal lines. And so you get 64 intersections and you have to put pieces on each of these intersections. And there's a rule of thumb that any beginner knows, which says do not put a piece on the fifth line from the edge. And yet in that 37th move in the second game, that is exactly what AlphaGo did. Um, and it, and I should say it, it went on to win the game. And I, I was watching it live and the reaction of the commentators was completely fascinating. I mean, they were speechless. They couldn't explain what had happened. Uh, one former champion called the move beautiful. Uh, another said it brought tears to his eyes. Um, Lisa Dole himself had to step up from the board after that game and, and get a breath of fresh air. Um, he was so taken aback by it. Why do I say all of this? Well, well because it was the sort of move that if we had seen a human being play it, we would have said, gosh, you know, isn't that creative? But it just feels wrong to call what that system did creative. It wasn't exercising creativity, but it was doing something very original. It was solving this problem of originality in a very different way. But I'm I'm sure I'm sure you've been asked this before and thought about this. But I mean, that, that just seems to be doing maths better than the human. But that's not the same, is it? As, you know, let's say, the discovery of the double helix, you know, Crick and Watson, which was, I think, came to one of them in a in a in a dream when they suddenly saw this shape emerge, and it, there was a brilliant piece of original research. Or another area, you know, artistic originality and coming up with a, a, a new kind of art that breaks through barriers, uh, you know, a Picasso moment or whatever. So, so. Have you drawn a distinction between different kinds of creativity and originality, some of which will remain with humans and some of which won't? Yes, uh, I, th- I think that's. Um, I think the the question, you know, what is it that we really value in a particular task? Is it that we value the outcome, or is it that we value the process? So, for instance, you mentioned d- discoveries in medicine. I think what matters far more is that we make the medical discoveries rather than the fact that they come to a human being in their dreams or in a moment of inspiration. And so to that extent, something like the Alpha Fold, which is a system developed by DeepMind to solve the protein folding problem in biology, I won't go into it, but it's you know what it was until recently one of the great unsolved problems in computational biology. Um, no human scientist had managed to solve this problem. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of proteins out there that, uh, and um, it would take, uh, I, I think it takes, you know, a biology student, an entire PhD to solve the protein folding problem for one protein. Uh, AlphaFold managed to do it for hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions now, uh, including proteins that aren't just human proteins. It doesn't matter to me the fact that this system was doing it by, you know, clever algorithm design, lots of computational power, lots of uh, data storage capability. The fact is it made those discoveries and that's what matters. It wasn't being creative, but it was solving this important problem. But when you walk into the Sistine Chapel, for instance, and look at the ceiling, you think, gosh, you know, isn't that beautiful? But you also think, gosh, isn't it remarkable that a human being created that? Um, 
we value um, works of art, for instance, both because of the outcome, namely that it's a beautiful thing that moves us and we find sublime and interesting and intriguing, but also the fact that it's a product of the human uh, the mind, the human imagination, human capabilities. And, uh, and the value is also in the process as well. Um, just to bring it back down to earth, uh, I, I like, I like coffee and I, I, um, I always smile when it comes to, uh, coffee capsules, which people can be quite snobbish about. Um, there was a, a Michelin star restaurant somewhere in the country, which, um, served, uh, uh, you know, capsule based coffee to its, uh, to its diners. Um, and what's interesting about capsule based coffee is that in blind taste tests, very often people can't tell the difference between a coffee that comes from, a you know, say an espresso machine and a coffee that comes from a you know, handcrafted by a barista in a cafetiere or something or whatever it might be. Uh, and yet when these coffees were served in that restaurant, in spite of the fact that people often struggle to tell the difference, when the diners found out that it was an automated coffee generating system, they were furious. They were livid. You know, how dare they sell me this uh, capsule based coffee rather than the thing handcrafted by a human being? Again, you know, it wasn't just the outcome, namely the taste of the coffee that mattered. It was also the process. And I think this question of what we value in the professions, whether it's a particular outcome or whether it's the process itself, is is quite an important one. I think for many things in the profession, often what we want is just a better outcome. We want a better diagnosis. We want our taxes done more efficiently and more effectively. We want to you know, get a better result at the end of the year in our exams. But that's not true for all parts of the professions. you know. Uh, and, and I think we can point to particular moments when we interact with the professions where the thing we really value is actually the fact that a human beings involved as well whether that is adjudicating on a difficult legal decision or supporting someone at the end of their lives uh i you know, i think it's possible to point to lots of areas of of our interactions with professions where where we value that process too okay la- la- last question is on the future and i, I mean I, I think sort of in in some ways, this is all moving quicker than we think, and in some ways, slower, isn't it? Because you know, the professions are still there, really. <laughs> the doctors and lawyers and accountants are doing things pretty much as they used to, uh, and, and yet, you know, you, you've described various things that are happening. Passages that we're not aware they're happening in the background that really are innovative and and and, and new. So, ten, twenty years from now, where are we? Mm. I think, while it's certainly true that. Lots of lawyers, lots of doctors, lots of teachers, lots of accountants. Again, if you look at the sorts of tasks and activities that people do in those different professions today, it's very different from what professionals might have done 30 years ago. You know, 30 years ago, being a nurse might have involved bedpans and, you know, bedside conversation. Today, you know, able to make prescriptions and even perform, you know, minor surgeries. And I think that's the technological story of the next decade or two in the professions not a story of mass unemployment but a story of almost mass redeployment a really significant change in the sorts of tasks and activities that people will have to do to solve the sorts of problems that traditionally professionals alone have have solved i do think though as you look further ahead into the 21st century and i think this is a matter of decades it's not a matter of centuries that there is a question about 
and I think it's an important question about whether or not the change is simply going to be in the you know, in this in the nature of these jobs or in the number of these jobs and and the argument that we make in the future of the professions is that it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that we're going to see as the century unfolds just a gradual decline in the demand for certain types of professionals and and uh Again, I don't think that's the challenge for now, but I think if we're willing to look ahead, not to 2020, uh, not to 2030, 2040, but to 2050 and beyond, that's something we're going to have to take seriously. Well, Daniel Suskin, thank you very much for helping us uh, get a little glimpse of, of where we're all headed. Absolutely fascinating. Such a pleasure. Thanks again for having me.